how am I to live my life is a question many people have. And last week we talked about having idols in our lives and how important it is to root those out of our lives, these good things that we've made into ultimate things. Now we're looking at what God has given us and he has raised the bar, not only who we are to love, but how we are to love them. This sermon was originally recorded at Castle Rock Middle School, August 5th, 2012. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, Today we're continuing our series, which is talking about what does the Bible teach? We've been doing this all summer, and just last week we got to talk about idols. What does it mean to have an idol? And if you have any takeaway from last week, usually idols are not this huge um, evil kind of thing. Usually idols are that we struggle with as humans are a good thing that we've turned into the ultimate thing. So it's something good like your job, your kids, your hobbies, and it's one of these vacation. It's some positive thing that you have now made into something where you want to find um, fulfillment. Um, You want to find the fulfillment only God can give, or you want to find the contentment only God can give. You want to find the protection or the security only God can give. And if you start to identify these things in your life, we were talking about last week, trying to root these out and recognize only God can give these fulfillments. Otherwise, you're going to leave empty, and you're never going to be filled up, and we're going to talk about how important that is in just a minute. Also, we're going to be looking at today is the second part of our series and answering this question, um, does it matter how I live my life? And this is part two. So the first part we said, does it matter how I live my life? Talking about does it matter um, what kind of God we have or do we honor God? And the answer, of course, is yes. Today, we're going to be talking about the, the other part of it. And remember, we talked about principles, and we talked about kind of like law books, if you remember. The Bible is not set up like this giant book of rules, like the IRS code or when you go to do bulk mailing at the U.S. Postal Service, uh, which is another story. But it's not this thick book that you have to try and figure out, like, what do I want? God's expectations are clear, and he's, in fact, summarized this into a number of principles. So I'll give you a few of those. Um, God has put the law in your heart, and a summary of that law is just what we talked about in our reading. Love God with all your heart and strength and power and everything. Love God completely. That's number one. And love your neighbor as yourself. So that's a summary, really, of what God has put. That's really also a summary of the Ten Commandments, which is a summary of what is in your heart. And the ultimate summary, how did Jesus boil this down to the simplest command ever? Can you think of an instant as Jesus is up in the upper room and he's with his disciples and he says, a new command I give you. So they're all ready, you know, like on the edge of their whatever it would be, couches or pillows, on the edge of their pillows. And he says, a new command I give you, love one another. So the one command is love, that's a principle. Love God, love others, that's an expansion of it. The Ten Commandments is an expansion of that. And then all of the scripture is an expansion of that. Does that all make sense? You're like, okay, just get going. Okay. So we're, we're talking about does it matter um, who I love? So the summary that we're looking at is, that is really dark. Is it just my angle? It says, love God, which is more important, big, which is good. Oh, I get to use my laser pointer. If it worked. It does work. I just can't aim. Excellent. Right there. It says, right there, it says, love others. How much do you love others is the question we're talking about. Like, how much am I supposed to put into it? You can't really um, decide if you're on track unless you have some kind of bar to measure, right? So, do you have pets? Who has pets? 63% of Americans have pets. So, I'm guessing that's a, probably about right. We seem like a pet-friendly community. I have pets, even. So, it's even, like, you, you can't picture me having pets. They're fish. So, the, the, um, the, the number that we're going by, the Americans spend $50 billion on their pets a year. $50 billion. 
which sounds like a lot, doesn't it? So I did a little math, and it means uh, $50 billion, uh, you'd have to divide by Americans, divided by 63%. So we're going to take 300 million Americans, multiply by 63, so now we've got 189 million Americans. Now we have to divide that into 50 billion, and do you know what the number is, those of you doing the math in your head? About $264 a person, which means, this means my family of five, because we have pets, can spend up to $1,322 a year on our pets. That puts us at the national average. And that's everything. That's vet bills. That's food. That's photo shoots. I mean, it's all the things, specialized ornaments and toys. This is all what you're spending on. If that's the only number you go by, you can kind of determine, do I spend money more or less than the average person? But the more factors you have, the better chance you get. So, for example, my friend Eric. He owns a salsa company. He's doing okay, and he's a person I knew in Washington. I went to visit his salsa company, which is kind of not too far from my house. It's in this industrial park, not super huge. We walk in, and he's got a fish tank, which is about the size of that screen. It's pretty huge, saltwater tank, and I was pretty impressed. I'm like, oh, that's pretty neat. He's like, oh, you haven't seen it yet. So it's got currents that run all the time, but not just in the tank. It goes through tubes and goes through to another tank and comes all the way back. He has all these exotic fish and it's got real coral, and he says, yeah, it self-regulates because I have just the right amount of coral. I'm like, what? And, and I didn't ask how much he spent on it as I stand in awe of glass like this thick. He goes, yeah, it was like 100000 but I mean, man, isn't it cool? I'm like, that's a lot of money, I think. Now, so that's my friend Eric, who, and I also have fish, right? So Eric's got these fish. He's got Nemo and Dory and the whole deal. And then I think about what my family spends on fish. So we think, okay, we buy the feeder goldfish at Walmart and then the tanks and the gravel and carry the one. I think we spend about $6 a year. It's $6 a year. So, I mean, that's the extremes, but we have 1300 to spend. So how do you determine if you spend a lot on your pet or not? You've got to look at a bar, right? Do we have that same thing for how much you love your neighbor? Is there like... Is there some kind of measure that you can look around and say, like, I love my neighbor more than my other neighbors, or I, live, I love neighbors appropriately? Is there any kind of measure? Because the world doesn't work like a video game where if you do it, your heart gets bigger and you get special points, and it doesn't work like Facebook where you friend people. It doesn't work like that, right? So we have no idea what the bar is unless the Bible gives us a bar to measure. And what's the Bible's bar? Love your neighbor as yourself. You're like, great. Because everybody loves themselves, don't they? Is there anybody, isn't it unusual if you'd ever run into anyone who doesn't like themselves and care for themselves? I mean, have you ever run into someone who doesn't wear clothes and doesn't eat and doesn't, no, because they'd be dead, right? So if you run into someone who is alive, they care about themselves. And the Bible says this is how much you're supposed to care for other people, which is pretty intense, I think. Some people, of course, love themselves a little bit too much, and I've told you this story, but it's my favorite, so I'll retell it again. When my sister was on a date, and she's talking, and this guy's telling stories about himself, and then she tells a story about herself, and he goes, okay, but let's get back to me. There's a, she couldn't get out of this date fast enough, and thankfully, she probably had opportunity because he's taking pictures of himself, putting it on Facebook, and then he took a little longer because he had to like his own photo. I think that's what was happening. So some people really like themselves, but what's the Bible saying? Before you decide how much you like your neighbor, it's not comparing how much your neighbors like their neighbor because that's too easy. Have you ever hung out with, um, and this is the problem, have you ever hung out with people who 
don't always love their spouse or respect their spouse or don't care for their kids like they should or their, even their pets, it is not that hard to feel good about yourself even if you're doing an inadequate job because you can always find someone who's not doing a great job. But in this case, the Bible says you can't do that. Here's the problem. If the bar of expectation goes up, that's nice space action we got in the back. There's an auto background that kind of rolls with it. So um, if the bar of expectation goes up, that means um, who I give this level of service or love, or etc., has to go down. It's a new word I just made up called the law of love thermodynamics. So the more that God expects of you, the fewer people you can do that to. For example, God says, um, I want you to love this one particular being with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's pretty dedicated, right? The bar, how many people does God want you to love with all your heart, soul, and mind? God. So we're in pretty good shape, right? So that, that fits my, my graph. Um, if the bar of expectation goes up, who I give that to goes down. So we have a singular person. God does this a couple other times. This happens um, with your spouse. God does not have the same expectation for you to love other people like you love your spouse, correct? It doesn't say in the Bible, love your spouse like you love yourself. It doesn't say that. It says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. And what did Christ do for the church? He died. Which says, not only is your love for your spouse to be active, your love is supposed to be in such a way, unconditional, in such a way that you love your spouse more than you even care for your own needs. As the expectation goes up, that's pretty high. That's just below loving with all your heart, soul, and mind. That how many people you can do that goes down. How many people does God expect you to love like that? One, right? That's the answer. One. That's it. One. Okay? Good. So that's all we can. And the same thing happens. Like if you go to Chick-fil-A or you go to a five-star restaurant, the service is going to be different, right? Chick-fil-A, um, they set records, by the way, on Wednesday for sales. But at Chick-fil-A, they've got good service. You go there and they take your drink and you're like, thank you. And they go, it was my pleasure. They all say that. You know, they pick up your garbage and you're like, thanks. And they're like, it was my pleasure. They go through that. I think that's pretty good service. But if you're going to spend like $80 on a meal at a five-star restaurant, in theory, I've, I've never got to do that, but if you do, wouldn't you expect the service to be higher? Right. If you're a teacher, if you've gone to college and they have a, a room full of people and they've got 500 people in this lecture hall versus individual tutoring, the service, the expectation as it goes up, how many people you can do that goes down. This is a natural thing. And why do I bring this up? The guy in our gospel for the day is pretty smart. And he, Jesus says, um, well, how do you see, they're trying to trick Jesus, and he says, well, what are the commands? And he goes, well, how do, Jesus just turns it on him, which is pretty good. How do you see it, and what does he say? Pretty much love God and love people. And the guy goes, well, just to be clear, because that's pretty high, right? Love people like you love yourself. What does he want to do? Remember, the bar is high, so how many people can you do that to? He goes, who's my neighbor? Can you kind of let me know? So Jesus tells him a story, and you're familiar with this story, called the Good Samaritan. So um, he talks about the priest and the Levite, which is like the pastor, and then like the music minister walking down the street, and they pass up the person. And then the Samaritan, I, I can't think of a good translation of what that would be, but I'll just kind of tell you the background, just really briefly. It's a person who intermingled. They had the law that said, you are not allowed to intermarry with anybody if you're Jewish. These are the people who intermarried with the non-Jewish people. So they saw them kind of as half-breeds. And then on top of that, they didn't follow the Jewish laws specifically. Instead, they kind of in, um, 
incorporated other false ideas into it. So you can imagine, for a zealous Jewish person, how frustrating this would be. Um, they're not pure blood and they, for the Jewish people, and they also don't follow the laws. Who is it who steps up to help, though? The Samaritan. He gives his money, he saddles up the donkey, he pays the way, and then he, Jesus brings it back and says, who's the neighbor? Pretty much everyone, right? Anyone you come into contact is your neighbor. This is not good, right? I mean, the expectation is here. And how many people we're supposed to do it to is also here. Do you like hearing that? And then when you look at the expectation, God says still, he doesn't change it. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean? Um, We're just going to talk for a minute or two on what the commandments say and what that means. How do I love my neighbor like I love myself? There's seven commandments uh, listed in Scripture that are covered, that cover your neighbor. The first one talks about authority, which means if you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, you honor the person in authority, teachers and police officers and the government, like you'd want to be honored yourself. Then you get to, like, the fifth commandment, you shall not murder. And that's pretty easy, right? Right? You should not at this point. (laughs) Yeah, that's not bad. Uh, Right, but then Jesus also clarifies and says you can't hate people. He says you should always be looking out for other people's best interest. You shouldn't even have evil thoughts about people, and you're like, what? And then the sixth commandment. If you haven't already been hit, he says, I want to honor the marriage bed by not committing adultery. Which means, um, to quote another guy, he said the world is filled with hot, available people. But when you're married, you say, that's okay to me. It's not like people just turn ugly when you get married. These kids, they're like, what? No, that's not how it works. The world is still filled with hot, available people, but your job is to look around and say, you know, it doesn't matter to me because I've committed to a singular person, which means I am not going to reach out to other people. It means I'm not going to flirt with other people. It means to honor other people like you honor yourself means I or you are not going to find fulfillment in anything but your spouse, which means you're not going to find it in the pages of magazines. It means you're not going to find it in the videos and images on the Internet. It means you're not going to find it in your movie choices. It means you're not going to find it in bestsellers that are pretty much literary porn. God says, I want that fulfillment to be in your spouse. Seventh commandment, don't lie, period. Eighth commandment, to don't speak falsely about your neighbor. So just imagine the weight that's coming on you. If there's any commandment that's socially acceptable to break, I think in our culture, it's probably the eighth commandment. Has anyone ever had someone call them out on that? You're just hanging out with your buddies and you start talking about some funny story about some guy who did something dumb. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now, if you're thinking about murdering someone, I think your friend might step up and say, listen, I don't think this is a great idea. Right? But Eighth Commandment happens all the time. And instead of, um, and it doesn't matter if it's true or false, God is saying, I want you to protect their name. For what purpose are you sharing this information now? Is it to build yourself up or to build the other person up? And if it's not to build the other person up, you shouldn't be doing it. Last commandments, 9 and 10. God talks about coveting. Why is coveting such a big deal? It leads to other sins. It really does. When you're not content with what God has given you and you start looking at at your neighbor's husband or wife or your neighbor's stuff or your neighbor's job, all this leads to is the demise uh, and, and, and execution of other sins. David's an example, right? King David desired his neighbor's spouse, and then what happened? Adultery, 
and murder, and his child dies. Same thing happened to Aquila Priscilla, a different example. Remember, they, they wanted to give money to the church, and they said, uh, Peter asked them, it's like, is this all the money? They had sold a field, and they seemed to be so desperate to be recognized for this great gift. They sold a field, and he said, was this all of it? And they're like, yeah, big time. Dead. What had happened? They coveted I don't know what it is. Was it coveting that other people would look up to them? Was it in their own mind they're trying to deceive themselves that they're, jealous, uh, that they're generous? I don't know what it was. But in that moment, they decided they're going to lie to Peter and they're going to lie to God. Coveting leads to other sins. So where do we sit? When you read the expectation that God has for you, which says, love your neighbor, love everyone as yourself. So the people is up here and the expectation is up here. It scares me to death. Isn't it terrible? In fact, it was Peter who attempted another thing. Because if this is true, this is going to have to change the whole way I live my life. And I'm not too excited about that. Peter's the one that said, um, he came to Jesus, and they were talking about forgiveness. And he was trying to not limit how many people he loves, but instead he was trying to limit how much love he had to give. So you got to lower the bar, do something, right? So they're talking about forgiveness, and he says, hey, Jesus... How many times am I supposed to forgive my neighbor if he sins against me? Like, how many times? Like, uh, seven? Which is, like, more than double the Jewish thing. They said you should forgive. It's just like baseball. Three strikes, you're out. Um, three outs in an inning. So the Jewish people said, if someone sins against you three times, you don't have to forgive anymore. Wouldn't that be sweet? If three times, you'd just be like, have a clicker. You're like, yep. That's what happened to me at the post office. They help you three times with the bulk mailing, and then they can't help you anymore. They have to send you home. They have a little log. So the, Jewish, the post office is like the Jewish law book. That's what you should keep in mind. So, so where are we at? He says, how about seven times? And then Jesus tells him a story, right? And if you're familiar with the story, there's a, a rich man, a very wealthy ruler, and a man owed him 10,000 talents, which is like this lump. Uh, a talent is a lump of money. I think it's like 2,000-some pounds of gold. So the amount here is 30 million days' labor, which is a lot. If you make $100 a day, that means this guy owed the king $3 billion, which I think is a fair amount, right? That's a, that's a lot of money. I mean, you could buy a lot of fish tanks for that. And so, it, so he owes him like $3 billion, roughly. This is my own figures. And he goes to the king, and he says, hey, tell you what, just um, don't throw me in prison. Let me work it off. I, I have no idea how he got $3 billion in debt. I mean, you'd have to buy military aircraft to be able to do that, but... He, he owes him $3 billion, and the king is about to do it. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to wipe that out. Go ahead. Go on your way. And this man is pretty excited, obviously. You would be excited if you owed $3 billion and someone said, you know what? Instead of you taking the loss, I'll take it. I'm, I got cash. Let's not worry about it. You're forgiven. Go ahead. So now imagine the man's mind when he's walking and he sees his buddy. And his buddy, Scripture tells us, owes 100 denarii, which is 100 days' labor, which 100 times... Um, 100 is 10,000. So he owes them about 10,000 bucks. I mean, our dollars. If you had just went from negative 3 billion to even, and you're thinking, you know what? If I had 10 grand, you're probably thinking that now. You're probably thinking, if I had 10 more grand, wouldn't that be cool? Just think if someone owed you $10,000. And you run into him on the street. This guy said, listen, pay me back that $10,000. In fact, he began to choke him. He was so vehement about it. The servants saw this, and they bring this guy to the king, and the king says, how could you do this? When I've forgiven you three billion bucks, 
and you can't forgive someone $10,000? Really? So they send the guy to prison to suffer. And what was Jesus' point? His point is, before you start talking forgiveness, in fact, to Peter he said, how many times? Seven times? What's Jesus' response? Not seven times, but 77 times. And Peter's got to be like, whoa, pump the brakes. And that's when Jesus told the story to say, just think, how much sin have you accumulated in your lifetime? Just add it up. It's going to be a while because it's going to be like $3 billion, right? And he says, before you even think about trying to forgive someone else, you need to think of what Christ has done for you to wipe you clean, to take your sins away, to give you forgiveness, to clean your slate because of his perfect life and death. And now, now you with open eyes, you can go and do this. So our options are lower the bar, eliminate recipients, or as God says, step up. It is hard. If you just go down the commandment, it is hard to give proper honor to authority. It is. It is hard to always think of someone else's best interest. It is hard not to be manipulated by all the sexual temptation that goes on in our planet, even on regular TV. It is hard to not lie. It is hard to think of your neighbor's best name. It is hard not to desire all the things of the world. But you know what God says? Before you decide to do it, cowboy up, man up, kid up, girl up, whatever you want to call it. But God says, listen, this is what my expectation for you is not to hang out and think about how sorry you are, not to compare how you love other people, but he says, before you go and do the extraordinary, and it is extraordinary to love your neighbor, I want you to think about what Christ has done for you. How he has made you new. He's taken your sins away. And he says, you're part of my family. You're forgiven. You're a new person. And I'm giving you the Holy Spirit so that you can do the extraordinary. The only way you can step up is if you're filled up. So before you go out today and say, I want to try and do the extraordinary, and you get that Tony Robbins books or whatever you want to do, think about what Christ has done for you, the massive debt that's been removed, the freedom that is now yours, and be filled up to do the extraordinary. Love your neighbor as yourself. Amen.